The Bible reading for today is Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 51, but we are actually going to be taking it over two weeks, uh, and this week we're going to concentrate on verses 37 to 44. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the bare seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Religion. Jesus was was famous for tangling with the religious leaders. Uh, Who would want to have any part in, in religion? Religion tends to get a pretty bad rap today. Even among Christians, none of us want to be thought of as being religious. Ooh, religious. No, I'm not religious. In fact, it's one of the worst insults that one Christian can throw to the other. Oh, you're just religious. You're just religious. And it's a very common thing for a Christian to claim, I'm not religious. I'm just in in a relationship with God. And I've done that before, to say things like that. Um, But when you're thinking about it, that's a bit like saying, I'm not alive. I'm just not dead. You see, 
within the Bible and even within the dictionary, the word religion means the worship of God. And a person who is religious is someone who worships God. And by that definition, any true Christian must be, guess what? Religious. Um, so if you claim to have a relationship with God, but you do not worship God, you don't know God at all. Because when you know God, you, you can't help but fall down on your face before him and worship him. James said in James chapter 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And that fits pretty well with what the Apostle Paul said about worship, which shouldn't be a surprise because remember that worship of God is religion. religion. And Paul said in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't be like everybody else, um, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, James and Paul, they're both giving a picture of what undefiled religion is. It's the worship of God and, and, and true worship, undefiled worship, is accompanied by godliness. It's a holiness within giving birth to a righteousness that works outwards from us as acts of justice and mercy towards others. All right? So if religion is the worship of God and if pure and undefiled religion is godly worship and godly living, I sincerely hope and pray that this church would become the most religious church around. That we would be a church who worship God. That we would be a church who are known for our godliness and for our righteousness. That we would be a people who are known for, for our acts of justice. Now, justice means that we just always do what is right. and We always do what is fair. We don't try and take advantage of anybody in any situation. And that we would be a people of mercy. And that we would be a people who are known for our love of God and our love of others. Now, I suspect that the reason that so many Christians cringe at being thought of as religious is because James was drawing a distinction between pure religion and corrupt religion. It's a distinction between undefiled religion and polluted religion, and we can't tell the difference. But that's what unbelievers do. An unbeliever may hear or witness an example of, of an occasional person who, who shows polluted religion or empty religion, and they come to the conclusion that all worship of God is polluted. But we know that's not true. If religion is the worship of God, and it is, let's not ever be ashamed of being religious in the pure kind. 
how could we possibly ever be ashamed of being known as worshippers of God? But let's be fair dinkum about it. Let's be the real deal. Because be in no doubt, Jesus is absolutely scathing of those who corrupt religion. He's absolutely scathing of those who corrupt the worship of God. And that's what's unfolding in the Bible reading from today. So there's two groups of religious leaders in, in today's reading. And Jesus is scathing of both of them. There's the Pharisees and there's the scribes or the religious lawyers. And as I said, I'm going to be splitting this message over two weeks. And so we're going to be looking at what Jesus says to the Pharisees this week. And then next week, we're going to be looking at what Jesus says to the scribes. But I'll tell you the difference between the two groups now. The scribes are the professionals, if you like. Right? They are the ones who studied the scriptures, the Old Testament. And especially they studied what's known as the book of the law or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, that they, the scribes knew the scriptures inside out and back to front, especially those first five books. And they saw it as their job to interpret the law. And it pretty much was their job to interpret the law. And we're going to talk about that more next week because Jesus is absolutely scathing of how they interpreted that law. Um, basically, lawyers do what lawyers do and not much has changed. They take something which should be pretty simple and complicate it and nail it down to the nth degree. Um, but they also, so they make it so that people couldn't comprehend what they were, or couldn't remember what they're supposed to do in certain situations. But they also would build in loopholes um, to get them off the hook. So that's one group, the scribes, the professionals, the religious law interpreters and makers. But the group that we're looking at today are the Pharisees. They were not priests. They were not the official religious leaders of the law. What they were was a, a lay purity movement. Um, so the Apostle Paul, he used to be a Pharisee. And he refers to, to the Pharisees as the strictest of the religious parties. So they were a group of people who would receive the teaching from the scribes. So the scribes said, this is what, what you have to do. And they would receive that teaching along with the, their book of all of these rules and regulations. And they would keep every one of those rules and regulations fastidiously. And they frowned upon anybody who did not. They'd be a real fun group to hang out with, wouldn't they? Anyway, it was a Pharisee who invited Jesus to lunch. And when they sat down to dine or, or recline at table, as they used to do then, because they used to... I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how I'd, how I'd go living in their culture, sort of laying down beside a, a, a table that's only about that high off the ground and, and eating off that. But, but the Pharisee was really surprised that, that Jesus didn't have a wash before he sat down for dinner. Now, we all know that it's a good idea to wash our hands before we eat, don't we? Well, I, I remember my sheep instructor, when I was a grubby student at, at the ag college, uh, the sheep instructor, wash your hands, you lot, if you, especially if you've been handling sheep. What do you want, I'll end up with anthrax or something? And he was just a very gruff sort of a fellow. He, he was a nice fellow, but really gruff. And, but that was pretty good advice, you know. 
wash your hands before you eat. But with the Pharisees, it wasn't so much about infection control. It wasn't, they weren't worried about getting sick. For them, it was about ceremonial purity. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a couple of examples of, of how a good host would, would put water out for the guests to wash. But for the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they, it was never a rule. The scribes and Pharisees, they took it and made it into a rule that you had to do. And so before tucking into lunch, their rules prescribed that you had to have this little hand-washing ceremony. And they would use water to pour over their hands. Um, and the amount of water that you had to use and the way that you were supposed to use it was all prescribed in minute detail in the rule book that the scribes had produced, a thing called the Mishnah. Why were they doing this? It's because the Pharisees believed that to achieve holiness and to maintain holiness, one had to separate themselves from sinners. And that's what the word Pharisee means, separated ones. That's what it means. But the problem is, okay, they're separated, but they're still out in the world. What if they bumped, bumped into a sinner on the street? Their sin would rub off onto them, wouldn't it? Or, or what about if, if they used a handrail not long after a sinner had used it? That they might, some of their sinfulness might get onto them and, and they'd not even know it. And that's why they had this rule that, that they had to wash just in case somebody else's sin rubbed off onto them. And Jesus highlights the absurdity of this and how their other rules are based on the same kind of absurdity. He said, you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And that was sort of a bit of a pun because they also had rules about doing the washing up, about how the cups and the bowls needed to be washed. And what Jesus is saying, how crazy would it be if you washed the outside of the cup and not the inside? You wash the outside of the bowl so it looked really nice, but it's still left with encrusted with last night's stew that the flies have been laying their eggs in over the, the last day. And, and that's a bit of a crazy thing to do. But that's exactly what they're doing with themselves. They took... See, the Pharisees are the cups and the bowls that he's talking about. They took a great amount of care to ceremonially cleanse the outside of their bodies to wash off everybody else's sin. But that didn't make them holy because on the inside, they were filthy. They're full of greed. And, and the word that's translated as greed in that translation also means extortion, plunder, theft. Full of greed and wickedness. Now we know God created the inside and the outside. God knows us intimately and God misses nothing. The Lord can see deep into our hearts and he knows everything about us. He knows even those things that we seem to be able to successfully manage to keep hidden from others. God knows. And me as a pastor... I, I'm very aware of this because I don't know if you know this, but 
your, your pastor's a sinful creature. And I'm very aware of my own sin. And you might not know about it. Well, maybe you do. But I know God knows me, just as God knows you. And yes, the Pharisees, they may have been able to keep all of their silly little rules and regulations, but, but on the inside, they were just as wicked as ever. And Jesus says something here that is going to take a bit of explaining. He said, but give as alms those things that are within. What's the giving of alms? It's the showing of mercy. That's the care that you give to those who have nothing. It's to give food to the hungry. It's to give shelter to the homeless. It's to give an offering to the cripple who's unable to work. And if the Holy Spirit is living within us, what's inside of us? We will be filled with grace and mercy and love for God and for others. And the giving of alms is a natural outpouring of the Holy Spirit within us. Right? Christians, we shouldn't see the, the giving of alms as oh, something we have to do because God said so. We shouldn't, we shouldn't see it like that. If we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will naturally have a compassion for those who have nothing. And so we will love others because God has filled us with his love. And in that case, everything is clean for us. The work of the Spirit is testimony to the purifying work of God within us. But the Pharisees didn't have the Holy Spirit within. They were filled with sin. And so what it meant for them, what would it mean for them to give what was within? They, they only had greed and wickedness to give. Well, the first step for them would be repentance. To give all of those things over to God, for them to become holy, they would have to hand all of their sin over to God, all of their greed, all of their wickedness, all of their selfishness, all of their lust, all of their pride. They would repent of all of their sin. And when we do repent of all of our sin, the Lord casts it away. It's gone. And he will wash us clean. And then we would be pure on the inside. Clean hands and clean crockery do not make us holy. Did anyone's mum ever say to you, cleanliness is next to godliness, you know? Did anyone's mum ever say that? And I'm seeing a few nods. No, it doesn't. It's nothing of the sort. Clean freaks don't get to heaven. Repentant sinners do. A repentant heart before the Lord. That's the path to holiness. And of course, we know that the blood of Jesus is what purifies us. Water isn't up to the task. Detergent isn't up to the task. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that is. We repent of our sin and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his grace and in his mercy, we are purified and made holy. But the Pharisees hadn't taken that path. So Jesus says, but woe to you, Pharisees. 
Now that word woe, he's not actually pronouncing a judgment on them. The word woe actually means, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Oh, things are not good for you. Woe, woe for you. Why? Because Jesus knew the judgment that was coming for them. Because they were fastidious in religiously doing some things, but they neglected what was most important. So take tithing as an example. And I'll just explain what tithing is. The word tithe means tenth. To tithe is to give to God the first one-tenth of everything that one earns or produces. And some folk today claim to tithe, but not really. Some do tithe. Um, But sometimes I get asked, well, to tithe, does that mean 10% of my gross income or 10% of my profit? Uh, Is that 10% before tax or 10% after tax? What about capital gains? Um, Surely I don't have to tithe on my capital gains. Um, And usually whenever that question's asked, straight away I realise that when it comes to giving back to God what really belongs to God anyway, if one is worried about these sorts of questions, it's probably more like the Pharisees. It's, It's a bit of an indicator that one's heart is wanting to hold on to stuff rather than letting it go. You see, it shouldn't really be about how much am I allowed to keep? It should be about how much can I give? So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that the tithe was mainly used to fund ministry. The main use of the tithe was to pay for the Levites who manned the temple. Imagine how well-funded ministry and mission of the Christian church would be today if every Christian was regularly tithing one-tenth of everything they earned or everything they produced. If every tenth fattened steer belonged to God and was sold for him. If every tenth truckload of wheat was delivered for God. If every tenth bale of cotton or bale of wool or bale of hay was sold for God. If 10% of the rent that one earned and 10% of the lease payments one received, and 10% of the capital gains on shares, and 10% of the dividends they made, and 10% of the capital gain when you sold your house or your farm. That's what it means to tithe, to give the first one-tenth of everything we produce. And some folk will say, I couldn't possibly do that. Well, I'm going to tell you that when one's heart is right before God, it's actually doubled. It's not a problem. In fact, I've always found that the more one earns, generally the harder they find it to give away the tithe. Because 10% of a little bit, oh, that's not much. I won't miss that if it goes. But 10% of a lot, you start thinking, But think what I could do with that. And, oh, surely God doesn't expect me to give all that. Somebody else can pick up the slack. But what I've always found is when we do, God always makes sure that we have enough. Now, the Pharisees, they were fastidious in their tithing. 
they, they knew the law. Okay, God wants 10% of everything that we produce. And so they, they applied it to everything. They, they even tithed on the herbs in their garden. Can you imagine how that would unfold? Robin would say to Michael, Michael, we're having roast mutton tonight. I'd like a, bit, a few mint leaves to go with it. Sure, dear. And I'll pop out and pick a, pick a, um, a sprig of mint. And one, two, three, four. Oh, there's 20 leaves on that. So pull off two of those leaves and they'll go in the offering. The pastor might want, want to have some mint on next week. And, and there you go. We've tied on. How, how ridiculous this seems. Right? They would concentrate on, on getting everything right, even the trivial matters right. So they would make sure that they met the written law just. But they missed what's truly important. Jesus said, you, you tithe on herbs for the dinner pot, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You see, those two things, justice and the love of God, they're matters of the heart. They were trying to be right with God through keeping the law of tithing. And I'm going to say to you today, don't try and get right with God by keeping the law of tithing. You give because you love God. They didn't love God. And that means they didn't love their brother justice and the love of God was missing. And so they kept their rule of tithing but their hearts weren't generous towards others. But the lesson on tithing actually doesn't end there. And we've got to try and think, well, how do we apply this to ourselves? Because when it comes to tithing and giving an offering to God, today, people are divided on this. And within the church, yeah, some, some folk are adamant. Christians should tithe. It says so. There you go. Then others go, no, 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 no. Tithing, that's an Old Testament thing. That's a thing of the law. And we're not under the law. And we're not, are we? So we don't have to do that anymore. So which is it? We all know that we should give. But how do we know how much? So I guess the way I see the teaching in the New Testament and the New Testament understanding is we are to give as we are able. That's what, that's what we're told to do. And we're told to give sacrificially. That means it's probably going to hurt when you give something sacrificially. It means that we're going to miss it. It's something which we probably could to good use ourselves. But because we're sacrificing it to God... We're going to miss it. Because that's what a sacrifice is, giving up something that we hold dear because we hold the Lord even more dear. And how much a person puts in the offering is between them and God. So I'm not going to stand up here today and tell you how much you have to put in the offering. Um, because I'm going to ask you, what is the Spirit of God telling you? And make sure that it's not the flesh telling you that. And I'm only speaking from personal experience. It's very easy to listen to the flesh. But what's the Spirit of God telling you? And I'm going to also say it's probably pretty likely that the Spirit of God will tell you to give more than what your pastor would ever dare to suggest you give. 
So I'm not going to tell you what to give, but I'll tell you for me personally how I work through this issue. I've always had the attitude that if I am to give as I am able, and if I am to give sacrificially, well, God commanded the people under the old covenant to give 10% of everything they produced. That means it was doable. And so by faith, if I know that I'm to give as I'm able, by faith, I know that I'm able to give 10% of everything I produce. And if I find that I can't manage that, then I've just needed to restructure what I hold dear and what I spend money on to make sure that I did. And that's why at every stage of our lives, right from when we're young, just starting work, right through until now, when we put together a cash flow budget of, of how we're going to pay our bills with, on the amount that we're earning, et cetera, et cetera, the first line on the expenses side of the budget is 10% of the everything that's totaled up the top, 10% of income. So we started with that. And in this verse in particular, it's always been a challenge to me to give a tithe or more. And this is why. Because Jesus said to the Pharisees, basically, you've been tithing fastidiously, but you neglect justice and the love of God, which is, he's already indicated what he's talking about, the giving of alms. And then he said, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Right? And so this is what many Christians do. Many Christians will say, well, I don't tithe. In fact, I don't give much money to the church at all because I give in other ways. And I'm about justice and the love of God. But for me, it seems pretty clear that Jesus is saying that we should do both. We should do both. And if I truly love God, I'm going to be loving him with every part of my being, with everything that I have and everything that I am. And part of that means giving sacrificially. I'll love him with my wallet. I'll love him with my bank pounds. I will love him with my assets. I will love him with everything I have. Now, as I studied the Bible reading for today, I found myself thinking of the prophet Malachi. You know Malachi? He was the last prophet in the Old Testament. So if you start reading the Old Testament, it'll be a fair while before you get to Malachi. But the reason I thought of Malachi was for these three reasons. One, when Malachi is speaking into the issues that he is speaking to, firstly, the priests who were supposed to be teaching the word of God had corrupted that teaching. And that's what Jesus is chastising the scribes and the Pharisees about. Their teaching was also corrupt. Two, their worship was tainted. It was bad religion. Why? because they didn't have justice or mercy and they weren't fully loving God. All of these things was what was happening in Malachi. And that's what the Pharisees were missing as well. And thirdly, they were robbing God. That's, a, that's the word. That's a harsh word, isn't it? But that's the word that God used. He says, you are robbing me. 
How are they robbing God? In their tithes and contributions. Bring in the full tithe, God said, and there will be food in my house. In other words, then the Levites will be provided for as they need to be provided for. But then he also gave them a promise there, but, and that's when they will be getting blessings again. Stop robbing me. Anyway, I guess the Pharisees sort of got one out of the three nearly right, tithing. But even in that, they missed what was important. What they didn't have was generous hearts. Yes, they were giving. But they were only giving because it was a rule that they had to keep. They weren't doing it out of love. They were doing it out of rule keeping. Which is why I said to you before, do not ever start tithing because it's a rule you feel you need to keep. Do it because you've been filled with the love of God and you want to give and you want to know, well, how should I give? Well, there's an indicator for you in the word of God. See, when it comes to giving, it, it begins with the tithe. It begins with that. It, it, that's what belongs to God. And, and according to Malachi, or according to God in Malachi, if I don't give that, I'm robbing God. But God expects his people to be a merciful people and to care for those who are unable to support themselves. And, and, and this the Pharisees were not doing. And this is what we should do. We don't do it instead of our offering to God. We do it as well as our offering to God. And the prophet Malachi, he foretold the coming of Jesus. And he foretold the coming of John the Baptist. And he foretold that they would come before the day of judgment and that they would come with a message of repentance to repent of these things, to repent of all sin and to repent of all wickedness. And I'm just delighted when, when I sort of read this and read the promises of Jesus coming and, and with all of the things that, that Malachi had been saying had been the problem in his day with the religious leaders. And then I read this passage and, and we hear about how Jesus is doing exactly what's been foretold. He's calling out the Pharisees for their defiled re religion. For the Pharisees, it was all an external religious show. They did it for recognition. And so they came across as being all very important. They got the good seats in the synagogues. They were looked up to in the marketplace. Things have changed somewhat. Um, don't put on a bit of showy religiousness thinking that, that um, it's going to open many doors for you in our culture. It won't. But in their culture, certainly did. And yet in God's eyes, they were not holy. In fact, they were a source of defilement. Oh, how much would that have hurt them? Being, thinking of themselves as being the, the purveyors of holiness. And Jesus is saying, you're a hidden source of defilement. He, could, he said they're like unmarked graves. Now, the problem with an unmarked grave is you might accidentally dig up a corpse or, or if it's not filled in properly, you might stumble into it or whatever and come in contact with a corpse and by their ceremonial law, ooh, I've become impure. And Jesus is saying, you are this hidden source 
of defilement. Which is ironic because they were making the claim, basically, you follow our ways and you too can be holy, but instead of providing this promised holiness, their teachings led to defilement. So what do we do with this? Is anyone here religious? Probably a different answer to to what would have come before the message. Yes! Because are you a worshipper of, God, worshipper of God? Then yes, you are re- a religious. Then you are religious. I think I just said you're religious. It's too, too many. Too many. If you are a worshipper of God, you are religious. I think I said it right that time. Well, let our religion be pure and undefiled. Let it never be about showiness. It's about loving God with every part of our being. It's about loving God with everything that we have and everything that we are. And true religion, pure religion, is not the keeping of rules. It's the Holy Spirit living within, changing us and transforming us to be a people who present true worship, undefiled worship, a worship that loves God, Worship that flows from this inner holiness that we find in Christ, where we're filled by the Holy Spirit with grace and mercy for others. Where it's a worship that honors God in everything that we do. True religion is to honor God from our hearts and in our actions. That's the lesson for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your immense love that sent the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour. Lord, we thank you that even though we are totally unworthy, we at one time were like the Pharisees, only we're probably grubby on the outside as well as on the inside, full of sin and wickedness. But even at that point, you loved us. And we thank you, Lord, that that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins, died that we might be saved, died, he took away our sin, that we might be forgiven. Oh, what a blessing that is, Lord. And Lord, we want to thank you for the continued blessing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that as we believe in you and trust in you, you fill us with your Spirit. And Lord... We confess to you that um, sometimes we're probably a bit like those Pharisees. Try to keep our sin hidden away, but on the inside there's still that sin and wickedness. Lord, we confess this to you and we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would do your sanctifying work within us that you would scrub us pure and clean and holy and that you would fill us with your grace and your mercy and your love, not just things for us to consume, but for us to emit, for us to pour out on others. Lord, we surrender every part of our lives to you. And Lord, those bits of our lives that we 
continue to hold on to and don't surrender to you, Lord. We, we do that now. Lord, do your life-changing work in us in the most difficult areas. And help us to love others with the same sort of love that you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.